with your Bible still open, uh, go ahead and turn to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 22. The uh, passage that we're going to be in today is one of my favorite Old Testament passages. Um, about a year ago, I was reading through the Old Testament, and I read over it, and man, I just, I was so struck by it. I, I continue to read it. Man, I must have read this text um, quite a few times. And I was talking to Colby last week about this text, and, and you could have 10 very different sermons on this text and yet still do honor to the text. Um, there are so much implications that are housed in just this one chapter. Um, <clears throat> with that said, I will not be completely exhausting this text, because quite frankly, we don't have enough time. And for those familiar with the text, you probably have heard sermons or have drawn conclusions from it from yourself. Uh, those of you who are unfamiliar with the text, um, I hope that you're just as impacted as I was when I read through it about a year ago. Um, so um, our focus is going to be on verses 8 through 20, but I'll read the whole chapter to give us a little bit of context here. <clears throat> Chapter 22, sorry, chapter 22 of 2 Kings. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, or Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bosketh. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Japham, Shapham, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, gotta love the Old Testament names, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hekiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people, and let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are there of the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, the carpenters and the builders and to the masons, and let them use it for buying timber and cord stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered to them into their hand, for they deal honestly. Now comes our text. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphom the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphom, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered in the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah, The priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes and the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and uh, Iakim the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Achiah the priest, Achim, and Akbor, and Shaphan, and Asiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Haras, keeper of the wardrobe, for she lived in, the Jerusalem, in Jerusalem in the second quarter. And they talked with her, and she said to them, Thus say to the, 
Um, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, and the words of the book that is in the king of Josiah or Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that might provoke me to anger with all um, with the work of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard how I spoke against this place, and against the inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. You have torn your clothes and wept for me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you should be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eye shall not see all the disaster that it will bring unto this place. And they brought back word to the king. Let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your, this moment in which we can be gathered together in your presence, Lord, and I pray that it is your presence which fills this place. I pray that it is your Holy Spirit that, that fills me, oh God. I pray, Lord, that you would prepare the hearts and minds of all of us that you would bring about conviction where it needs to be brought about, Lord, that you would encourage and edify us here today. Lord, I pray that your word is proclaimed faithfully and purely. Lord, that we would all be humbled. You would be glorified, God, and Christ would be exalted. I thank you for this undeserved opportunity to present your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Long text. I know, um, I will do my best to get through it in a timely manner. Give a little bit of context here. Um, if we look back at chapter 18 of, of 2 Kings, we'll read in, in verse 13 that the kingdom of Assyria had came, ag- uh, came up against Judah. And Hezekiah, the king of, of Judah, basically uh, uh, pleads with the king of Assyria and they kind of bargain, and, and the king of Assyria asked uh, for uh, 300 talents of silver. And so we read that Hezekiah, he empties out the storeroom, the house of the Lord. He empties out the king's palace. He gives it all to uh, the king of Assyria. But I'm guessing that wasn't enough, because we read in that text that he also strips the gold from the doors and doorposts of the temple. <clears throat> And after Hezekiah's death, his son Manasseh reigned in his place, and we read that he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And after his death, Amon took his place and was just as bad as his father. Amon was conspired against and killed, and in his place, his eight-year-old son is put up as king. Eight years old. Enter young King Josiah. Verses 1 through 2, we read that Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Now, as we read through verses 3 through 7, it is Josiah's desire to restore the temple back to its original glory. He obviously had um, a heart for the Lord, walking in his ways, as the text says goes out and, and sees the temple stripped of its gold. Um, this time, there's no pressure-treated wood that we have today. The, obviously, there was no care given from his father or his, great, or his grandfather. Therefore, time and weather has 
taken its toll, most likely in the temple, uh, in the house of the Lord. Looks beaten, ragged, I'm sure. So Josiah says, I, you know what, this isn't right. I'm going to want to restore the glory back to this temple, back, back to the house of the Lord. I'm going to bring it back. <clears throat> and he's willing to spare no expense to do so, seeing that he has the temple, um, which has acted like somewhat of a, a storehouse or bank, if you will, depleted of all of its money. You see right off the bat that Josiah, at the young age of 18, has zeal for the house of the Lord. Much like his great, 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 great grandfather David. I looked at genealogy. That's the proper number of greats there. So starting in verse 8, we read, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. Now, as of removing the treasure, the high priest um, finds some manuscript, I'm sure full of dust, brushes it off, looks at it, begins to read it, and realizes what he's found. In excitement, he dis- he uh, claims what he has found, I'm sure yelling it out to Shapham. Um, now, what is the book of the law? There is no clear indication exactly what this manuscript was. Some say it was the whole Pentateuch, which is the first uh, five books of the Old Testament. Um, some say it was Deuteronomy, which is referenced um, always as the book of the law. Um, but... <clears throat> Regardless of what exact manuscript they found, they have found the book of the law. They have found the word of God. Now, how did it come to be there? Now, again, we can't be sure of this, but uh, Deuteronomy 31, verses 25 and 26 gives us a pretty clear indication. Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God that it may be there for a witness against you. Most likely that is how it came to be where uh, Hilkiah has found it. Now, what is worth noting is God's preservation of this manuscript, of his word. We know not if uh, this indeed was the only copy um, Possibly the, the northern kingdom of Israel might have had a copy of this. Uh, but we do know that it was definitely absent from the nation. Great idolatry was abundant in this nation due to the leadership of Josiah's father and grandfather. Uh, we read of gross idolatry that the people so willingly succumbed to, which leads me to a conclusion of this, that when the word of God is absent, sin prevails. And are we not seeing this in our own country? The word of God has been taken out of the government, has been taken out of schools, and has been taken out of the homes. And what we see is is a decline of of morals. Morals are uh, 
subjective, relative. Goodness is relative. There are no absolutes now. Has not the word of God been taken away from this country? Have we not seen the sinful behavior? And yet we're shocked at the sinful behavior of our nation when it approves sinful behavior. But we shouldn't be shocked about this. Again, wherever the word of God is absent, sin always prevails. We must acknowledge the hand of God in this preservation here. If the scriptures were not of God, they no doubt only would be here with us today in the form that they are with us today. Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Now I want us to distinguish something here. When the word of when the word law is referenced here, what are we exactly talking about here? Because I know my own studies, when you read, the, when you hear the law, we're trying to figure out exactly what that encompasses. Um, in short, there are, there are three um, different s- categories of law. You have the ceremonial law, which encompasses different feasts, dietary, and clothing restrictions. Um, sacrifices, circumcision, and all things that were meant to distinguish Israel from their pagan neighbors. You then have the judicial or civil law, which was given in order to dictate how about to go about restrictions and restitution. Then comes the moral law, which deals with um, justice, sexual conduct, and includes the Ten Commandments. Now, it was probably the law as a whole that convicted Josiah and affected him so much. <clears throat> but I'll be, more, um, I'll be primarily focusing on the moral law, more specifically the Ten Commandments, due to the reason that we can still look to it today. As Paul said in Galatians, it is a schoolmaster. The Ten Commandments were uh, essentially a summary of the entire Old Testament law. As Mark F. Rooker stated in his book, The Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments should be viewed as fundamental to all the laws of the Bible. They may be compared to the Constitution of the United States and the laws that follow as somewhat an um, sorry, anal- uh, analogies to sections of federal law dealing with particular matters. The Decalogue, which is another word for the Ten Commandments, appears to represent the embodiment of all laws and statues of the Pentateuch, a summary of biblical law or as heading for all its categories, end quote. The ceremonial judicial law were for a certain people during a certain time for a certain purpose. And yes, they point to Christ. But again, certain people, certain time, certain purpose. So Hekiah finds the book and I love this part of the text. He gets, now, the scriptures don't add exclamations in the original language, but I imagine there was some excitement here. When he brushes it off, he sees what it is, he probably yells out, I found the book of the law! And I'm sure Shaphat comes around and says, What, really? Where? In the temple! Imagine that! Of all places! It's right there. This goes to show 
that the house of the Lord had become nothing more than a bank or a shed to store things. How did something once so vital and important get lost in a place where it was supposed to be the whole time, which was the house of the Lord, Lord, which once itself was so vital and important to these people? Now, it's easy for us to to read this and, and kind of scoff and laugh. But the fact of the matter is that there are many buildings today, many buildings just in this town, that claim to be the house of the Lord, which have in them, within their four walls, this very book. But you would never know it. The churches of today have abandoned the word of God in its worship, discipleship, and preaching. Instead of songs scripturally based to lead us into the throne room of the Almighty, we have upbeat poppy songs that are filled with I's and me's instead of him and he's. Led by groups that are focused more on entertaining than praising. Scriptural-based discipleship has been replaced with self-help programs and worldly psychologies. Scriptural-based preaching has been replaced with messages of feel-good encouragement and testimonies that one can relate to. Spoken by those who act more like motivational speakers rather than shepherds. Caring more about being family-strong rather than biblically sound. We today are no better. Yet in the midst of their neglect and disregard, God's word resurfaces. God's word will always resurface. We've seen this many times in history. The Reformation. God's word resurfaces. In the midst of seeking the treasure within the temple, God reveals to them the true treasure. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shapham, and he read the law for himself. Now, I'm not sure if Hilkiah didn't believe, or Shapham didn't believe Hilkiah when he gave him the book, or maybe he was just in awe of it, of the discovery of this manuscript that had been uh, lost for so long. But his actions afterwards show that something indeed shook him. We read, And Shaphim the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered into the hands of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. And then Shaphim the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphim read it before the king. Now we hear no more mention of the repairing of the temple. Um, no doubtingly it, it continued on as the king commanded. But something else has taken place that is of far more importance. Now, I don't know if Shaphim wanted to give kind of a a little shock to the king because he doesn't say, Hilkiah found the book of the law. He goes to the king and says, and uh, while we're emptying out the temple, Hilkiah found a book. Let me read it to you. And he just begins to read it. He begins to read it. Shaphim wastes no further time. He gives no further detail. He just begins to read. 
Shepham does the most powerful and appropriate thing that one can do with the Word of God. You ready? You read it. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. Hebrews 4.12 But a sword that is kept in its sheath will profit you nothing. Shaphan does not give it to Josiah to put in his collection of antiquities. Shaphan reads, trusting in the power of the word of God alone. <clears throat> now we see the law's revelation of sin. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. I don't know if Colby remembers, uh, we had a neighborhood outreach. I think it was one of the last ones we did. And uh, we knocked on a woman's door, and surprisingly, she invited us in. And um, sat us down, and we kind of told her what RHC was about. And um, I remember her saying how she was raised in church. She loved church. She loved God. She loved the Bible. And... Uh, how the Bible, she believed, was the Word of God, and that the Ten Commandments were there to, to show us how to get along and to uh, be civilized. I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember exactly, but that's pretty much what she said. And I, I remember thinking, um, this, is, this is the world's view of the law. Well, it's there to help us get along. It's there to help us be civilized. That's why God gave us the law, is it not? After Shaphan's unsheathing of the law, Josiah is deeply pierced. Tearing one's clothing was a public and powerful expression of grief in ancient times. It is associated with mourning and deep grief. If there is one thing that we can learn from this, it is that this, ladies and gentlemen, is where sinful man must begin. This is where we must begin church. Churches today and those who are the poster child of today's modern American evangelicalism steer away from the law, steer away from sin. As one popular speaker in the Christian world stated, I don't mention sin. I don't want to beat anybody down by doing so or make them feel guilty when they're going through enough already. End quote. The exact opposite is true. Man has too high of an opinion of himself. What man needs most, what you need most, what I need most is to be brought to the end of myself. It is the conviction of sin that causes godly sorrow. And what is sin? 1 John 3, 4 puts it plainly and simply, sin is lawlessness. This is what the law does. As Paul states in Romans 7, 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. When our Lord gave the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, the greatest sermon ever preached 
spoken by the lips of our Lord himself, what was the Sermon Mount about? Was it not more just an in-depth look of the law, a deeper explanation of the law that the nation of Israel had misinterpreted all this time? What about in our Lord's evangelism? When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? What does Jesus point him to? He doesn't mention God's love at all. He doesn't mention the grace of God. He doesn't mention the, the great experience and life that he can have now. He says, what does the law say? Look to the law. And when the rich young ruler says to him, I have followed the law. What does Jesus say? Sell all your possessions and follow me. The man walked away sorrowful, for he was really wealthy. You see, what Jesus did here, he didn't, he didn't give a new commandment. He just said, okay, you follow the law, let's start with number one. Shall have no other God but me. Sell all that you have, follow me. Jesus stops the rich young ruler in his tracks, and he fails at number one. I have no other God but me. Martin Lloyd-Jones, just a fair warning, I'm going to be quoting a lot of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He has a lot to say in this issue, and I just couldn't leave it out. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, quote, A gospel which merely says, Come to Jesus and offers him as a friend and offers a marvelous new life without convicting of sin is not New Testament evangelism. The essence of evangelism is to start by preaching the law. And it is because the law has not been preached that we have had such superficial evangelism, and I will add conversion. True evangelism must always start by preaching the law, end quote. <clears throat> we cannot dismiss the importance of the law. Do we not realize that if Christ had failed at any point of the law and fulfilling the law, he would not be sufficed to be our Savior. Another Martin Lloyd-Jones says, At no time has God shown more clearly the inviolable and absolute character of his own holy law than when he placed his own son under it. End quote. Josiah's eyes have been opened to who and what he really is. And all this while, Josiah no doubt thought of himself as a man who was living out the law, a godly man, much like Isaiah. We read in chapter 6 of Isaiah, who when sees the Lord, sees that he truly is a sinner, how bad he really is compared to the holiness of God. The law comes quickly and demolishes all the righteousness that he thought he possessed. Not much different than man today who think that their good deeds will outweigh their bad. When asked of the modern person if they would be going to heaven or hell, chances are they will hear of heaven, of course. Why? Because I am a good person. Compared to, to uh, someone strung out on drugs, compared to murderers, child molesters, those who break the law, I'm a good person, and I would agree. 
compared to that, you are a great person. But that's not God's standard. God's standard is perfection. Josiah, though he may be king, sees spiritually his status. He has nothing to give. The law has weighed him and found him wanting, as it has all of us. He can offer nothing and cling to nothing when it comes to his spiritual status. He is guilty. Martin Lloyd-Jones, there is the mountain, he says, that you have to scale. The heights you have to climb, and the first thing you must realize as you look at that mountain which you are told you must ascend is that you cannot do it. That you are utterly incapable in and of yourself, and that any attempt to do so in of your own strength is proof positive that you have not understood it. Which brings me to the next text. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, and Iakim the son of Shapham, and Akbor the son of Micaiah, and Shapham the secretary, and Asiah the king's servant, saying, Go, sorry, inquire of the Lord for me, and the people, and for all of Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. After his conviction, Josiah cannot continue as if nothing has happened. He does not try to justify himself, nor does he become angered by the guilty accusations that the law has made clear. Instead, Josiah humbles himself and does the most logical thing one in his position can do. Go and inquire of the Lord for me. I am amazed by how many people will tell me of a sermon that they heard or even come up to me and say, Hey, I just want you to know, great sermon, convicting. And yet the moment they walk out those doors, the conviction is gone. Like there's a barrier that just scrapes the conviction off of them. And right back to the world they go. Right back to the same old way they live. Nothing changes. It is superficial conviction. Not with Josiah. He cannot close the book and shake off this conviction. He cannot go back. He must know more. He must find out what he is to do now. And that's what the law does. It strips us us of everything. And we say, what now? There is nothing I can do. What, Lord? Go and inquire The uh, home group that I'm a part of, studying uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' Sermon on the Mount, hence all the Martin Lloyd-Jones quotes. Um, And as we're going through the Beatitudes, Dan Parker pointed out in his wealth of wisdom and knowledge that when studying the Beatitudes, you'll notice that the first four are a picture of someone coming to salvation. And the, I think, five following are kind of a picture of the aftermath of that conversion. 
Now, we have already seen and discussed that Josiah is guilty of transgressing this law and that he has nothing to offer, that he has been found wanting. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We see that Josiah seeks for more, uh, I'm sorry, we see that Josiah does not try to justify himself, but humbles himself and tears his clothes as a sign of mourning and grief. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are the meek or the humble. And now we see Josiah seeks for more of this righteousness that has been revealed by the law. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, I'm not saying that Josiah wasn't saved before this. Um, we cannot be for sure, know this for sure. But I can't help but notice the broken spirit and the change that takes place in his life. I mean, can you imagine? You're the king of God's nation. And you think that you have it all together. You think that you're following God's law. That you're not under God's wrath. That you and God are okay. That you're a good person. And then the law comes. And you see that you fall so, so short. Can you imagine that? I hope so. In fact, if indeed you call yourself a believer... There had better been that point. I hope that you can relate to Josiah. I hope that there has been brokenness in you. God's law and standards have not changed. And I'll tell you this, man's sinful behavior has not changed. There had better been a point in your life that you have seen yourself opposed to the living God and been broken over it. There is no conversion where there first is not conviction. I'll say that again. There is no conversion where there is not first conviction. Man must be broken, humbled, and found wanting before he will seek it is my conviction that it is impossible to be brought to salvation otherwise. True salvation. Um, 13b. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Here's the good part. The law's revelation of his holiness. Now I purposely separated verse 13 into two sections because of this latter section that really reveals something to me. I'm sure at this point I am not revealing and, and speaking to you anything that you have not already heard before. I'm sure the conviction of the law, the purpose that the law is there to convict us, is nothing new to you. We've all heard this. But I realize something. Though I may not have as much as a shallow view of, of the Ten Commandments as the world has, as just being there to help us be civilized and get along with each other, um, I realize that I do have somewhat of a shallow view of God's law. And I believe that we are all somewhat guilty of this at some point. 
You see, we, we view the law in such a negative manner. We see it as, as a list of, of do's and don'ts and cannots. A law of uh, uh, rules of, of restrictions. Always seen in the negative. Now, we've already looked how the law convicts us of the fact that we missed the mark and that we are indeed sinners and it seems as though we, we stop at that. And I have heard many state the fact that the only thing that law accomplishes is pointing out our sin. Once the law shows that we're sinners and we're broken over our sin and we, we come to Christ for, for salvation and forgiveness, we can just, okay, get rid of the law now. We don't look at the law, forget about it. It's done, it's done its thing. I've heard many, many people state that, myself included. But we have to understand it reveals our sin by comparing it to his holiness. This is why the rest of the verse 13 says, The Lord's wrath is kindled against us due to our disobedience. One thing I've noticed about those in law enforcement, you know, police officers or judges who enforce the law, is that when you break the law, they don't take it personal unless, of course, you're shooting at them or fighting them. Then they, I guess it becomes a little personal. But for the most part, when you get pulled over for a ticket, for speeding, the officer doesn't come up to you all mad and, or the judge sentenced with his gavel all mad at you like you did something to him. They don't take it personally because personally, it wasn't against them. They're just upholding their law. They're just doing their job. But we don't see that when it comes to God. When you break God's law, he takes it very personal. Why? Because God's will in the Decalogue is synonymous to his very nature and mirrors the very character of God himself. In ancient Israel, all offenses were ultimately an offense against God. This is why David says in Psalm 51.4, Against you and you alone have I sinned. We read in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all know that we're sinners because the law shows us. We all know that we've all fallen short of the law standards. But it's funny that Romans 3.23 doesn't say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the law's standards, the glory of the law. It says all have sinned. How do we know that? Because the law says we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Interesting. The primacy of the Decalogue was to show what God was like and our relationship to him and everything else with regard to that knowledge. If the law does nothing more than reveal how utterly sinful we are and hopeless we are, then I do not see how the psalmist in Psalm 1 says that he takes delight in the law of the Lord. And on his statutes does he meditate daily and night. Are we to think 
the reason for God to command us that there be no other gods but him is because, well, it's going to cause disunity. Don't have any other gods because you're going to be fighting about it. You can't be civilized. Or we think because God says, I know you guys' hearts. You guys are going to go to other gods. So I want to convict you. I want to catch you. I'm going to put this in there just to show you just how disobedient you are. Or is it not because there is no other God but the Lord himself? And therefore, we should act accordingly to this truth revealed about our God. And he is a jealous God, worthy of all our adoration and praise. Therefore, we should not give any praise or bow down to anything, any images. Is he not a God so great and powerful that there is power in his name alone? That there's holiness and power in God's name alone that we should not even take it in vain. Did he not rest on the seventh day to take in all his mighty works? We are also to mimic that trait and give a Sabbath to take in all the works of the Lord. Even with the rest of the commandments, dealing with other people, with regard to other people, are we not to lie because it's not nice and civilization can't operate that way, as the world says? Or is it not because our God is a God that is, a, that is faith, faithful and true to his word? That all he says comes to pass, and we are to mimic that characteristic. Is he not a God that is able to satisfy us and knows all our needs before we do? What need should we have to steal? Are we not to be satisfied in God alone and our joy be contingent upon him? Therefore, what reason should there be for us to covet for something more? You see, the commandments are more than just some rules that convict us. They reveal the nature and holiness of God. That's not to say that one of the primary purposes of the law is to convict us. It definitely is. God, in essence, says in the Decalogue, this is who I am, and this is how you, who is made in my very image, are to respond to who I am. Consider this for a moment. God, through the inspiration of his Holy Spirit, entrusted his word to be written by the hand of man. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But when it came to his law, he tells Moses, I've got this. And takes his finger upon the stone tablets and writes his law himself. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon just gets done finishing the temple. The last act is to bring in the Ark of the Covenant. And we read in verse 9, There was nothing in the Ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, the law. Where the Lord made covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priest came out of the holy place after placing the law, the Ark of the Covenant, inside, 
a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The gold had been laid. The temple had been filled. But it was not until God's Ark of the Covenant, which only possessed the law, and which filled the temple with his glory. You see, that is, that is the point of this sermon right now. The point of this text, I believe. You see, Josiah declares, I want to restore the glory. It is my desire to restore the glory to God's house. And God comes along and says, that's fine, that's great, Josiah. Start here. Start with my law. That is where my glory lay. Not in gold. Not in the fixtures. It is my law. Start with my law. We have looked at the law's revelation of our sin. The law's revelation of God's holiness. Now, let us look at the law's revelation of grace. The rest of the text. So Hilkiah the priest and Achim and Achbor and Shapham and Asiah went to Hulda the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tigva, son of Harus, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent, and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Now, due to time, I won't not go line by line from that text. Um, <clears throat> much of the last bit is pretty straightforward. Holda relates to the, that God's judgment and wrath cannot be stopped. The inhabitants of Josiah's nation will face great disaster. This, of course, is speaking of the invasion um, and besieging of Jerusalem of the nation of Judah by the Babylonian Empire. Uh, taken away into captivity. But likewise, this world, ladies and gentlemen, faces a similar yet far worse fate than this. And likewise, God's judgment cannot be thwarted. It cannot be avoided. And it cannot and will not be stopped. This world has likewise kindled God's wrath 
and is heading toward the fiercest of all disasters. But there is light at the end of this dark response. There is hope in this seemingly hopeless message. We read, because Josiah humbled himself and because he was broken over his sin and sought out wisdom, he will be spared this destruction, this disaster to come. Ever wonder how people in the Old Testament were saved? The exact same way they're saved today, by grace. I have heard you, and your eyes shall not see the disasters that I will bring upon this place. How sweet these words must have been to Josiah. Grace is the last thing he most likely expected, because, like us, it is the last thing he, I, you, deserve. His heart had prepared him for the worst due to the conviction of the law. Now he hears of this imminent destruction, but at the end, hears the words of grace. You will hear many sermons today of grace. Not many on the law, as if the two were opposed. But we must realize that the grace is grace in light of the law. The law does not oppose grace. It expounds it. Before we can offer the curse of the gospel, we must first, or I'm sorry, the cure of the gospel, we must first introduce the curse of the law. As Colby stated last Sunday, we must learn the bad news before the good news. Otherwise, the gospel ceases to be good news and just becomes news. Romans 5.20, Paul says, Now the law came in to increase the trespasses, but here's the good news. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. If we think lightly of our sin, then we will think lightly of the grace that saved us from it and therefore cheapen Christ's sacrifice on the cross that paid the penalty for it. For Christ took upon himself our breaches of the law, our trespasses of God's law, as if he had done them. We cannot cheapen our sin, the breaches of the law. To do so is to cheapen what happened there. In closing, if you were to continue on to the next chapter of the Second Kings, chapter 23, you will read of Josiah's reformation. That he restores the Passover. After this, Josiah goes throughout the nation, purging it of all idolatry, that he might, as verses 24 and 25 state, establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after. Now, Josiah has already received grace. He's already been promised by God, you're not going to see this disaster to come. I will spare you, and you will go to the grave in peace. 
So why now? He's got the free pass. Why obey now? Why, why go out through the nation purging it of idolatry? Probably being hated by those who, who take part in it. Why go through all of this now? Why display obedience now? It is because the grace that he received from the freedom, or that freed him from the consequence of the law, now inhibits him to fulfill it. He is not moved by obligation nor guilt, but of love for this God that bestowed undeserved grace. Now, he has been purging the nation of idolatry since age 12, I believe in Second uh, Chronicles you'll read. But now, he does it with the purest of motivation. His obedience is due and evident, evidence of received grace. Beloved, we are to be no different. Knowing what grace we have received, but what means we have received it by. 1 John 2, 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him, talking of Christ, if we keep his commandments. When asked what the greatest commandment was in the law, Matthew 22, Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds here and encapsulates the law. That's his response. The law. How do we know that we've come to know him? If we keep his commandments. Which were? Love God, love people, right? How does one do that? Look to the law. Now Cameron, that sounds awful like legalism there. Be careful. You know, uh, Christ fulfilled the law. We don't have to. You know, we just follow him. We don't look to the law. First of all, legalism is looking to the law for justification, for salvation. This is looking for obedience as a response to that salvation. Plus, if you're following Christ, you're going to be fulfilling the law. Just a little heads up. Um, Today, ladies and gentlemen, there is, there is no temple. Nor is there any stone tablets to look to. For there's no need for them. Jeremiah 31, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people, paraphrase. Believer, you are now the temple. And we have already seen that God's glory does not rest on the aesthetics, but in his commandments and obedience to them, to the law. We can come to church, we can play the part, we can have our Bibles, we can throw a prayer around every now and again, but I believe that was the, uh, the qualifications that the Lord Lords gave to Jesus. Lord, look what we've done. We've, we've 
casted out demons. We, we taught in your name. We've done all these things. But what does he say? Depart from me, for I never knew you workers of iniquity, or some of your translations say lawlessness. So when we look in the mirror, how does this temple look? Is it full of his glory because of obedience to his law? Let me end with just one more last word from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, quote, The trouble with us is that we so often have a wrong view of holiness at this point. There is nothing more fatal than to regard holiness and sanctification as experiences to be received. No, holiness means being righteous. And being righteous means keeping the law. Therefore, so-called, therefore your so-called grace, which you say you receive, if it does not make you keep the law, you have not received the grace of God. What is grace? It is that marvelous gift of God which, having delivered a man from the curse of the law, enables him to keep it and to be, a right, and to be righteous as Christ was righteous, for he kept the law perfectly. Grace is that which brings me to love God, and if I love God, I long to keep his commandments. He that hath my commandments and kept them, Christ said, he it is that loveth me, end quote.